So good to be with you all uh, this morning. Uh, I typically at um, uh, it, 10 o'clock, I am in a session upstairs because I found that it's um, a great time to meet with people. Part of my new work is uh, pastoral care. And so I meet with couples and individuals at the 10 o'clock hour uh, to uh, walk with them on their journey. It's just part of my new ministry since uh, stepping away from the executive ministry position uh, about, about three years ago. So anyway, as Paulette said, I, I love the title of this class. This is my story. This is my song. And that's what I hope to be sharing with you today, my story. And I'll incorporate some songs with it uh, as well because uh, music has always been an important part of my journey uh, in the Lord. I'm going to spend my time looking down more than I typically like to because if I don't, it will become a two-hour sharing time. <laughs> so I was born in a family that had strong faith. My parents had four boys. I was the second son. We lived in Nebraska. My great-grandfather, Reverend James Runcie, was an itinerant preacher in Nebraska, uh, traveling to three different rural churches every week preaching God's Word. Uh, I happened to have uh, his commentaries that were produced in uh, uh, 1870s. Uh, there's about 40 volumes. I've tried to use them at times, but it's truly archaic. But it's still <laughs> it's sweet to, to have those that I know he used in uh, preparation of sermons. His son, my grandfather Hiram, was a very quiet uh, man, never missed a church service, read through the Bible 136 times. I happen to have a copy of the sheet that he would mark each time he read through the scripture. It's just so fascinating because I never knew him to be a man of many words, but uh, he still recognized the importance of scripture and how it would influence his life. My father and mother uh, raised us in first what was the Evangelical United Brethren Church. In 1967, they merged with the Methodist Church. We became the United Methodists. Um, we all, all, all four boys and parents sang in the choirs. Uh, my dad taught Sunday school, adult Sunday school for over 40 years. Our family was always the first to sign up uh, to host traveling missionaries and to take meals to those who were shut in. I grew up in a family that truly loved God and served at every opportunity. That's the, my mom at 92 and a half is still that same person, always looking to see who she can serve and care for. Uh, I remember practicing for a sermon in my bedroom when I was 13 years old. We were on the, I was on the second uh, floor of our house. Uh, it was a class for church, and uh, my mom must have heard me because when I came into the kitchen afterwards, she said, uh, Mike, you have the makings of a minister. I didn't really know what that meant, but I poo-pooed it um, because I was determined, you know, in the, the middle 60s, there were lots of bands, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones that were emerging, and I had this dream of uh, taking my band into the world and traveling and having lots of hit records. Uh, of course, uh, probably every young boy who played guitar at that time had the same dream. Uh, I played in a couple of bands in high school. They never really mounted much, but uh, I determined that after high school I was going to pursue music. So I auditioned for the School of Music at the University of Nebraska, which in Nebraska, it's the only game in town. They had amazing football team at that time, not so much in the last 20 years. It's been a little painful for us Nebraska boys. But um, <clears throat> I think back, and uh, whenever we had a Sunday night song service, I would always uh, request for the Old Rugged Cross. It was just one of those songs that stayed with me, so we shall sing. 
On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. How I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Side note, if you were in the first service this morning, Josh just kind of played into this because he said uh, how important it was for us to communicate good news through singing and how they are remembered throughout our life. Well, at 18 years of age, uh, I could not wait until I got out of my parents' homes. I truly believed that I had the meanest mother in the world. She raised us to do dishes, to do our laundry, to sew buttons on our shirt if we lost one, to iron our shirts. I had to also do yard mowing, and uh, it just seemed like uh, she had more ideas to how to uh, take our time, and I just thought, I got to get out of this house. Uh, And fortunately, um, all of us were sort of raised with the idea that at 18, you're on your own. My older brother went off to the Navy. Navy and I went off to college. My other brother moved out to uh, live with his uh, uh, eventual wife's family uh, as a junior in high school. Uh, They worked on a farm, and then my younger brother went off to college. So at 18, all of us just left home. It was uh, probably uh, in light of uh, that very, um, using quotes for the recording here, mean mother. Uh, I knew of no one else. I had no friends that had those kinds of responsibilities. So I was set to head to Lincoln, Nebraska for college when a recruiter came uh, 1st of August uh, and offered me a music scholarship to a little school between Lincoln and Hastings uh, called York College. Uh, It was a fairly newly established school from the Churches of Christ. Uh, I wasn't aware of the school uh, other than it was Christian. I thought, I'm a Christian. What a great idea. I'll do that for two years because scholarship was important. I knew that I was going to have to put myself through college. My dad had told me, he said, I just don't have any funds for you, Mike. Didn't bother me. A lot of kids would go off and do work study and do jobs while you're in school uh, just to make ends meet. And so I went off to uh, uh, school at York College in 1971, drove myself the 60 miles all by myself. My folks didn't come and help me set up. It just it wasn't happening that time. It just was you were kind of on your own, and I didn't think anything of it. Uh, it was interesting, the first day of orientation, a bunch of uh, the guys that I just met were sitting around uh, outside enjoying the sunshine, and these beautiful three co-eds uh, move up to us uh, on the sidewalk, and of course, um, 
We introduced each other, and this girl named Mac uh, uh, was kind of curious about her. And back then, you know, lots of people uh, talked about signs. I don't know if we really understood it, but I asked her what her sign was. And she said, uh, cancer. And I said, oh, so is mine. And then I said, well, what's your uh, birthday? And she said, July 19th. I said, amazing, that's my birthday too. And it was just kind of fun. Uh, now, it was not love at first sight. Uh, we didn't know each other, but uh, I was certainly interested in this uh, person named Mac who uh, really was Nadine McAllister. Uh, <clears throat> now, I will also tell you that my first three months, I came to realization that my mom was brilliant. I had most of my friends had no clue how to do laundry. They'd never ironed a shirt. They'd never sewed a button on. They mixed their laundry in the same wash tub and had pink underwear. And they couldn't figure... And I thought... This is amazing. And I told my mom that Thanksgiving, I go, thank you for what you taught me. And uh, I am forever grateful for that really mean woman. But something else I learned at York College was that I wasn't a real Christian. I didn't go to the right church. I didn't practice the right traditions. I didn't believe the right truths. My so-called friends said I was lost and I needed to be baptized to be saved. I needed to join the correct church, the restored church of Christ, the one true church, which happens to be the one that they were all members of. My roommate was a preacher's kid. My two other friends, one was a deacon's kid, one was an elder's kid. Uh, they all tried to talk me into getting saved. The problem for me was that I truly believed in God. I, I didn't really have spiritual uh, uh, issues at the time, but I was baffled by their examples because they were not men who followed Jesus in their behavior. They were drinkers. They were smokers. I'd never tasted alcohol. Uh, their experiences with girls were shocking to me. I just couldn't believe that these people were followers of Christ, but were communicating to me that I needed to have Jesus. It really did not make sense to me. But what happened was I drifted into a period of spiritual confusion and doubt. I was still pursuing music. I loved my classes. I loved the chorus, the traveling music group I was in. But I truly was disillusioned about Christianity and church involvement. It just didn't make sense. Fortunately, I didn't turn to alcohol or drugs, but I did turn away from an active faith for several months. It was during that time of confusion that I started paying attention to uh, what I was hearing in Bible classes. There were a couple of professors who taught Scripture in ways that opened my eyes. Uh, it was not so much um, pulpit-pounding kind of insistence, but rather out of curiosity, and I appreciated that. I also paid a lot of attention to those who were speaking at campus devotionals. These were my peers who were talking about how Jesus had influenced them and how he was impacting their lives. Uh, I will also say one of the greatest spiritual influences of my life at your college was my college chorus director. Uh, what I loved about him was during rehearsals and, and pre to our concerts when we would travel about, he would talk about the meanings of the songs. And he said, we certainly want to get the music right, but the harmony and our preparation for getting the music right, the only purpose was to highlight the messages of the songs. 
That really impacted me. Because we would unpack the meanings of these words and what do they mean and what do you think that the composer had in mind? What message do you think they had for the population that it would be presented to? It was changing my life and was ministering to me without me necessarily being aware of it. I admired that man. I could tell that God was doing something in my heart. Midway through my second semester as a freshman, we were at Wichita, Kansas for a concert at a statewide youth rally. And afterwards, I felt the tap of God on my shoulder. And I stood up before all of my friends and said, I want to give my life to Jesus that night. Afterwards, we all went over to a local uh, church and my uh, chorus director baptized me on March 18, 1972. And I personally accepted Jesus in a way that I had not done ever before. He truly became Lord of my life at that point. When I went home after my conversion to Jesus, I was passionate about teaching everyone I came in contact with. I started reading scripture, and scripture came alive to me in ways that I had never, ever experienced before. It was meaningful. It was raising lots of questions, but giving me lots of confidence. I started a Bible study with my high school friends, and I felt called to inform my folks and all of my family members that they were wrong about their faith. (laughs) And I pointed out the error of their ways to a point in which they invited my former pastor into the home. I think they had a fear I'd join some cult or something. They get, who is this young man? I love that he loves Jesus, but he has gone like way over to the other side. That minister sat down in my presence and everything he brought up, I was able to refute by book, chapter, and verse. And I was so proud of myself. I could defend the faith once and for all delivered unto the saints. I'd heard that a number of times. What was happening in my family, though, was not so uh, enjoyable because they truly were fearful. My brothers just wrote me off. I was uh, a black sheep, if you will, in my family because of my intent to try to get them to understand truth in a way that they didn't understand it. I came back to York for my sophomore year, got much more involved in school activities. I became the student course director, led campus devotionals, joined a program called the Master's Apprentice Program. It was designed for students to take a break uh, from one year of college, be mentored by an experienced minister or missionary, and I chose to go to the University of Wyoming as a campus ministry intern after I graduated from York. It was a great sophomore year, even though we lost our course director midway through the year. I started dating Mac, uh, became the acting music director uh, for the chorus, uh, contributed to me growing up immensely because I was interacting with my peers, trying to get them to pay attention to the songs and the messages and trying to do what the director had done the previous year and a half. Uh, The night before graduation, I asked Nadine to be my wife, and she simply said, Mike, that's nothing to joke about. Probably indicates I had a little bit of sarcasm uh, growing up, and she didn't always know if she could believe me, but I convinced her the second time around. She eventually said yes, and I will tell you that three of the most important decisions I think one can make in life I made as a student on that campus. I made a decision for eternity because I gave my life fully to Jesus. I made a decision at that point who I wanted to spend my earthly life with as a partner. 
Uh, and then the third thing, I fully decided that I wanted to serve God's kingdom for all my life ahead, what my career would be. And a favorite song of mine during that time uh, of college and just recognizing who Jesus was, uh, a simple song, we don't sing it much anymore, but it's Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, my Redeemer, how He loves me, how I love Him. He is risen, He is coming, Lord, come quickly, After leaving York, I moved to Laramie, Wyoming, and Nadine moved to Indiana, about a thousand miles apart. Her dad had retired. They lived in South Dakota. He retired to Indiana where another sister lived, or another daughter lived. We maintained our relationship through long-distance phone calls, which at that time was a very expensive experience. <laughs> and I didn't have much money. I had to raise my own support. Uh, interestingly enough, most of my support came from the Methodist Church <laughs> because I didn't know anybody in the Churches of Christ. So I reached out. I had, uh, I think, become a little more modified in my harshness by that time. I was maturing in the Lord a little bit, though I was still part of the Churches of Christ, which we still had some clarity about who was right and who was wrong. <laughs> Uh, we also wrote a lot of letters. You remember those times you put a stamp on them? That's how you send them. It was great fun. Uh, <clears throat> we only saw each other three times during that year, and I look back on that, and I will say it was one of the most challenging years in that way because we're preparing for a wedding, but I'm far away preparing my life for a future of service, and Nadine is working, and uh, so it was interesting. The three times we did connect, we had a lot of conversation that was challenging because we're trying to figure out relationship in the midst of that. I would not recommend it to young couples. We got married June 29th, 1974 in my hometown because Nadine was in Indiana. All of our friends were around York College and so it just made sense. We were uh, married in, uh, months, uh, in uh, Hastings. And our honeymoon was traveling out to Muncie, Indiana. We would become the Runcies from Muncie. I was, I was beginning a youth ministry position. Uh, 1974, guess what? There were churches of Christ processing youth ministry because there was no youth minister in Scripture. So therefore, I was working for a slightly more liberal church who loved their teens enough to want to have someone full-time working with them. Youth ministry was an eye-opener for me. I ministered to teens who were in love with Jesus, as well as others who were caught in a web of sin with drug and alcohol use. Their parents often turned to me, this 22-year-old uh, kid, to uh, help them. How do we keep our kids in church? How do we help them to have passion for Jesus? How do we help them avoid the pressures of the culture? I was in way over my head. <laughs> Uh, members would come to me for marriage counseling when our uh, minister left for another position. I was the only paid staff. I was the one you go to. Back then, people didn't really go to counselors. They went to ministers, and I was a young guy, and I'd sit there, I'm sure like a deer in headlights, listening to these stories and going, let's pray. Uh, <laughs> 
because I didn't really have words of wisdom. You know, I could quote a scripture, but it truly didn't feel like it was appropriate. That it just, it just didn't seem like it would make sense. But during that time, I realized I need training. If I'm going to do this uh, kingdom work for all my life, I need to get prepared. So <clears throat> during our months of years, Rebecca, our older daughter, uh, was born. And after four years, we decided, I decided to go back to undergraduate school because I'd only done three years of undergraduate work. We moved up to northern Indiana where Nadine's folks w were, and uh, I went to school full time. Uh, it took me one year to graduate. I changed my major from music, so I had to take a few more classes. I became a psychology and uh, Bible major at Grace College in northern Indiana. And then I looked for schools that uh, would train me as a marriage and family therapist. Uh, it just so happened one of the schools I was looking at was Harding Graduate School in Memphis, Tennessee. It just so happened that their academic program met with the AAMFT, the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. They were the credential givers at that time because states didn't have licenses, if you can believe that. That's a long time ago. Anyway, uh, how are we going to survive if I'm in graduate school full-time? I, I need at least a part-time job. Nadine needs a part-time job. Uh, we were introduced to becoming house parents at Curley's uh, in uh, Perigold, Arkansas. And so we did. They provide housing, a vehicle, our food, our insurance. I was like, this is a godsend. So we uh, moved to Perigold, Arkansas, and immediately began parenting seven troubled adolescent <laughs> girls who came from the most horrific home environments that you could imagine. We were introduced to things like lice and sexual abuse and physical abuse, troubled emotional girls, and we were supposed to be their parents. And we're about 26 at the time. We are still somewhat ignorant in life, but we knew how to love them. I'd worked with teenagers. We'd worked with teenagers for that time, and we did love them as much as we could. But it was a very challenging year, for, uh, four years for us while we were there, because I would leave for two days a week and go over to uh, Memphis, which is 100 miles away. That left Nadine with those kids for two days. And then I would come back, and guess what I had to do in my free time? I had lots of reading, lots of paper writing, lots of preparing for exams. Then there were internships, and then I was still working part-time at the college. It was hard. Uh, we will save that for another story, because Nadine has a story there, because it was just very, very challenging for us. Our marriage was kind of put on hold, if you will. I will tell you there was lots of anger and lots of brief conversations because I needed my energy for school and she needed her energy for her family. She wanted me to partner with her and I have to admit I was probably not the most available partner during those years. It was a sacrifice on a lot of levels. Uh, I just won't go into much more detail with that. Uh, it was a very difficult time for us. Our daughter, our second daughter Miranda was born while we were in Arkansas. Uh, Nadine's father passed away suddenly. Her mom moved to Paragould from Indiana to become a dorm mother. Lots of changes during that time. After I graduated with my marriage and family therapy degree, we moved to St. Louis. I re-entered youth and family ministry. Now I had the tools necessary uh, to do a much better experience working with the families that were a part of our faith family. I also started counseling with Christian Family Services part-time, which was the Agape in St. Louis. 
Um, <clears throat> this was a beautiful experience for me in my training. Uh, Nadine's mom moved in with us. We became a multi-generational family, which was also a beautiful experience for our, our children, especially. After six years in youth and family ministry, I was invited to uh, become the executive director of Christian Family Services, and I did so, so I was still in St. Louis. It felt like a really good fit. I was appointed an elder eventually um, in our, our church, and uh, it just seemed like God was pulling a lot of things together, using my training, using my ministry. It was, to me, a, a perfect experience uh, for my uh, future in um, marriage and family therapy, and I directed them for 17 years. Um, it was an agency that did foster care and adoption and counseling services, and during those years, our counseling services just exploded. Churches all over just needed some place to refer their people to, and now it was beginning to open the eyes of people, like counseling wasn't such a bad deal, you know, it made sense, maybe it's okay, and they're Christians, you know, so they're not going to, like, violate your faith, which is often the fear. You go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and they're going to tell you, well, did you know that your faith is your mental illness? <laughs> you need to quit trusting in something that doesn't exist, and well, they needed somebody who, uh, who could partner with God and them in developing new perspectives for their lives. It was really during that time that my eyes were opened to the beauty and value of serving all people. Because that's what we did. We served all people, no matter what their skin color, no matter what their faith, no matter what their orientation to the world was. Jesus is for all. I'd, I'd known that. I'd heard that. I thought it was practicing it, but what I discovered was that for years I had drawn a boundary around who I could serve and who was outside of my service realm. But I was moving out of that black and white theology, always having the answer for everything, and, and a practicing a, a world, living in a world that was more multicolored, and growing to believe that God deeply loved every person who breathed. And that was important for me in my theology and my training. What I discovered was not all of my brothers and sisters in Christ could see that. They were still comfortable with the very clear boundaries that you would draw. The agency I worked with was established and supported by Churches of Christ as Agape years ago. Toward the end of my time in St. Louis, we had a child of minority race in foster care that was in the custody of the state, but we were using one of our families. The judge over the case gave us 30 days to find a suitable family for this child, or the state would place the child with a family of their choice. We searched nationwide, found a family in Ohio. They happened to be a Baptist family. I needed to get approval from our board, and one member said that he could not support the placement since the family wasn't part of the Churches of Christ. I met with this man and his elders and emphasized that the adoptive family would be able to teach the child about Jesus and experience being raised in a Christian home. And their reply was, Mike, it doesn't matter if the family is Baptist, Muslim, or atheist. Lost is lost. My heart broke that evening in ways that I hadn't been preparing myself for. That church eventually dropped their support, and it was significant, but the board and the agency did what I believe was what God would have wanted us to do. We placed that child in that family, but we grew beyond that to open our eyes and hearts to a broader 
ministry focus. It was the right thing. Far beyond the original mission, but truly represented the message from Scripture and from Jesus to love one another. Love one another, for love is of God. He who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love. After high school, our older daughter Rebecca came to Lipscomb, met and married a wonderful young Christian man named Brad Glisson. They eventually had twin girls, Abigail and Sydney. Our heartstrings were strumming to move closer. <laughs> Shortly after the twins were born, Nadine's mother, at age 92, passed away. Then Miranda, our second daughter, decided she was in Ecuador at the time. She decided she was going to move to Nashville to be closer to her sister and her nieces. And that was in 2007, and we looked up to heaven and said, I think it's time, God, to move to Nashville. Fortunately, I was a good friend of Tom Burton. Many of you know Tom. Lynn and I worked together for a few years there, but he created a job for me at Agape. And so we moved, and I did full-time counseling, but also traveled on weekends and Wednesday <laughs> evenings to tell the story of Agape to all the churches that were supporting Agape at the time. And then... Uh, Three years later, the uh, elders here approached me, asked me to interview for the executive director, uh, executive ministry job here at Otter Creek, and uh, in 2011, I became the executive minister here at this beautiful congregation. I served in that role for nine years, retired three years ago this month. Uh, what a beautiful time that was. Uh, I now serve the church as the counselor and pastoral minister, been doing that part-time since, uh, and I will always invite people, don't hesitate to give me a call, it's the gift from the church, if you're managing things or, or processing things, you just need an extra voice and want to bounce some things off of, I do this um, throughout the week, virtually, I'll try to get with you face-to-face -face if necessary, but I just want you to know that that's a part of this is the ministry that Otter Creek is providing for you. Both our daughters are in Nashville. It's a great uh, blessing for us. Rebecca and Brad have added to their family with Archer, who's now 12. Uh, twins, by the way, are almost to graduate from high school. That doesn't make sense. Miranda and, uh, married a young man named Brandon Wood. <laughs> not... not Julie's Brandon Wood, uh, but uh, he was a member here at Otter Creek, went through the uh, members class with us, so we knew him. He was from Kansas City, uh, and uh, anyway, Miranda and Brandon met. They now uh, live in East Nashville. They have four little ones, seven, four, two and a half, and nine months, so it's a very busy house, a beautiful time. Uh, there are a lot of things I didn't address on my, my journey here. Uh, Nadine had a battle with cancer before we moved here. One of her siblings was murdered. We both lost our dads in tragic ways. We had several financial challenges through those times. But here's what we've learned about our journey with the Lord. Struggles are an invitation to lean into the strength of God. And that's what we've learned. Struggles are not to be run from. We don't have to like them. But embrace them because it's the way God can show up. And that's been a powerful lesson for us. Again, in the midst of struggle... 
We want to find a way to relieve it, but we also have to ask ourselves, what is God doing for us? How is He walking with us during these times? In my 50 years in ministry, I've served as a campus minister, a youth minister, a family minister, a worship minister, a preacher, a deacon, an elder, an executive minister. I got it covered, folks. <laughs> At one point in my life, as I told you, I had all the answers. And I, I did so with good intention and a heart full of love for Jesus. I could truly answer everyone with clarity and confidence. After all, isn't that what Scripture requires? That we know to be prepared how to give an answer to everyone who asks to give a reason for the hope you have from 1 Peter. Here's what I know now. I actually know less. I have more questions than I've ever had in my entire history. But I am more at peace with Jesus than I've ever been. And when people ask questions of me, I smile and say, that's beautiful. Let's, let's kind of check that out and investigate because I don't know if I know. But I want to learn with you. And that seems to draw them in more than having an answer. Because so often my answers push them away rather than drawing them in to the beautiful spirit of Jesus. Jesus is truth. He is the way and the truth and the life. He, truth, is what sets us free. There are four things that I've learned uh, in working with people, and especially the senior group. Things that promote longevity in life, that, that promote joy and purpose in life. And these are the four things that I've discovered. What's interesting is they all come out of research. One, keep the faith People who have an active faith have more hope and happiness in their lives than those who have no faith. That bears out in research. Faith contributes to having a purpose to get out of bed every day. Faith assists us in preparing for those challenging experiences that we have with our health and with the loss of loved ones. Secondly, I've learned the value of movement. Keep Moving. Movement is medicine. Eating good, nutritious meals is a given. But exercise and keeping your body moving is essential to a long and fulfilling life. Third, being in community. Nurture your social self. There are going to be moments where you truly feel like you just don't want to see anyone. Force yourself. Talk yourself into it because staying connected with friends and family helps you stay connected to a bigger purpose. Social groups like churches are needed in your life to walk with you when you hit those moments and feel alone because there are a lot of people in our world who feel lonely and alone. You might still feel lonely in a group. But there are others that can help you with that as well. Fourth, good genes are nice, but joy is better. The surprising finding is that our relationships and how happy we are in our relationships is a powerful influence on our health. So says Dr. Waldinger, who is in Harvard Medical School. Taking care of your body is important, but tending to your relationships is a form of self-care too. 
Close relationships more than money or fame are what keep people happy throughout their lives. Those ties protect us from life's discontents. It helps us delay mental and physical decline and are better predictors of long and happy lives than our social class, our IQ, or even our genes. Two things I'd like to close with, because we're about out of time. One is my favorite passage. Paul, writing this while he's in prison, has some messages for us when we have questions. Philippians 4, 4 through 13. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, Family, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. For whatever you have learned or received or heard from Paul or seen in him, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Paul writes, I greatly rejoice in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, Paul writes, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. He knows that secret. He knows the secret of whether being well-fed or hunger hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I want that secret. And what is the secret? Here's the secret. I can do everything through Him who gives us strength. I love this family, Otter Creek. They have uh, 92 years of amazing history. They've always been kind of on their own in the sense of they listened to the Spirit of God. These elders today informed us of a conversation that's important to all of us. I trust them because I know their hearts. They are people of prayer. They are people who pay attention to the Spirit of God. They do not rush into decisions. We're kind of outliers with Churches of Christ because of that. Whether I like their decision or not, I'm invested in this family. I'm invested in you. I'm invested in my earthly family and in our, my family of faith. Why am I so invested? Because I sense that there is truly a sweet, sweet Spirit of God here. And we're going to close with... There's a sweet, sweet spirit in this place, and I know that it's the Spirit of the Lord. There are sweet expressions on each face and I know they feel the presence of the Lord
sweet heavenly dove, stay right here with us, filling us with your love. And for these blessings, we lift our hearts in praise. Without a doubt, we'll know that we have been revived when we shall leave this place. Let's pray. Thank you, God, our Father, our Son, your Son, and your Holy Spirit. Thank you for coming to us nearly 2,000 years ago in the life of Jesus. Thank you for coming to live within us through your Holy Spirit. Bless each one here today, Father. Bless them with a sense of your power of your love, of your grace, of your mercy, of your constancy in their lives. With whatever they encounter this week, may they have a sense of your sweet, sweet spirit. In Jesus I pray. Amen. Thank you.